Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. I want to talk to you tonight about faith and patience. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. There are, uh, patience is, is a, a widely used word throughout the New Testament, and um, uh, it, it literally means, from the Greek, this word literally means cheerful endurance. It also means constancy. Sometimes it's translated as perseverance. Now, in the early days of the, uh, of the church, and when I say early days, I don't mean necessarily uh, the apostles' days, but the days following those, um, patience or perseverance, as I said, those are kind of interchangeable terms with the early church fathers, was considered to be the greatest of Christian characteristics. It was considered and, I, and, and thought to be, esteemed to be, the greatest of any of the, five, the nine fruit of the Spirit. It was something that they understood in a much different way than we do. We think of patience and or perseverance as being the, the time period between when we pray uh, the prayer of faith, believing that we receive when we pray, and then when we get the answer. But perseverance meant a lot more to them because their lives depended on it. There was great persecution in the early days of the church. And so patience and perseverance had more to do with holding fast your belief in God in spite of the risk through persecution and through the many martyrs that were made in the early church. Jesus didn't talk much about perseverance. Or he didn't talk much about patience. The word patience isn't used very often. The two outstanding places that he did, Luke chapter 8, verse 15, he's talking about the sower sowing the word. This is Luke's account of what Mark tells us in the fourth chapter about sowing the word, sowing the seed of the word in different kinds of ground. And without going through the whole thing, I just want you to see verse, eight, verse 15 of Luke chapter 8. He's describing the good ground that produces 30, 60, or 100 fold. He says, but that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Another place, the only other place I want to uh, draw your attention to where Jesus used it, and really the only other places that he did use it was uh, uh, when he was telling the crowds, uh, teaching them in parables. You remember one of the uh, parables was about the guy that was forgiven of his debt but just before then, he asked the, uh, the master, the one that he owed money to, have patience with me. Well, there are several times where Jesus used the word patience in that context in parables. But in Luke chapter 21, after he's talking to them about end time events, he tells them that they shall be betrayed. They'll be hated of all men. There will be rulers that try to put them to death. But in Luke 21 verse 19, he said, in your patience possess ye your souls. Now, folks, this is probably the, the, uh, the uh, major reason why patience was esteemed so much, so highly among the characteristics of the Christian life. And, and again, when I say characteristics of the Christian life, I'm talking about the nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, or faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. 
this patience was esteemed to be greater than any of the others. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't care about the others. But again, the life that they lived and the the threat of persecution that they lived under was a guiding factor for them. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 6. Let me say this as well. A lot of times people get a wrong understanding of patience because they look at the life of Jesus or the ministry of Jesus really. They look at his ministry and see that for the most part Jesus got what we would consider to be instant results. But I think we have to also consider and, and it always comes up. People always as they begin uh, in their growth in the knowledge of the word They'll hear people talk about believing God and standing strong in faith and and not wavering and things like that. But then they'll look at Jesus' ministry and say, but he said things and things happened instantly. And so the idea that a lot of people have is that all of Jesus' healings were instantaneous. Well, they weren't. But a lot of them were. Well, how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile with what the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us about being patient And the instant results, the frequency of the instant results that Jesus got. Well, we need to keep some things in mind. First of all, the Bible says Jesus had the Spirit of God without measure. We usually think of that as far as power to do miracles is concerned. And and that's certainly true. But that's not the only work of the the Holy Ghost. See, one of the works of the Holy Ghost that the Bible tells us about has to do with ministry gifts. So if Jesus had the Spirit without measure concerning miracles, miracles and so forth that makes sense to us but we also need to recognize that he stood in all five of the ministry gifts that are identified in scripture first he was an apostle he said himself my father has sent me to do the works the miracles and the other things as well well an apostle is a sent one nobody could be sent more than jesus was sent and then in hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 it tells us it tells us that jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession even now well, the second ministry gift that Jesus stood in was the prophet. You remember he said when he was talking to the people in Nazareth, no prophet is without honor, save or except in his own country, his own hometown. So he stood as a prophet. He called himself a prophet, and the people received him as such. Also, Jesus was an evangelist. There were times where Jesus cried with a loud voice in the middle of the crowds, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink of the waters that I give him that will flow out of him like rivers, out of his innermost being. And then the Bible tells us numerous times where Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom just as he taught his disciples to do. Well, that's an evangelist. An evangelist is one that preaches the gospel. Now, an evangelist, from the examples in the the, um, uh, record that we have from the Bible, from the New Testament, evangelists have gifts of healings and, and certain manifestations of the Spirit that draw people to the truth of the gospel. And so there were certainly times where Jesus ministered healing as an evangelist. Well, he was also a pastor. He called himself the good shepherd. That's what a pastor is. A pastor is a shepherd. He's leading the sheep. And he identifies with the, with the pastor's office that he, that he calls the shepherd when it comes down to the people following his voice and so forth. And then the last one, the last of the five ministry gifts identified uh, in Ephesians chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is uh, the teacher. And the Bible tells us a lot about his teaching. 
And it tells us that on some occasions, the multitudes that he got healed were a direct result of extended periods of time that he was teaching. So he stood in all five offices of ministry. He fulfilled all the five offices that we know of as ministry gifts. So it's not hard, it's really not fair for us to try to compare ourselves with the Spirit of God by measure with Jesus who had the Spirit of God without measure, not only in miracle working power, but also in ministry gifts, ministry offices. Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews by the Holy Ghost is encouraging the people that they be not slothful, beginning in verse 12, that they be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, that sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Luke 8, 15. Let's keep reading. He said, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Now notice the word surely in verse uh, 14. If you look this up in a concordance, it's a combination of two words that mean affirmation. These words are sometimes translated truly, truly. When Jesus is saying something as an effect or God is saying something to his people. And he says it twice to emphasize the strength of the affirmation that he's making. Well, that's what this word surely is. This is God swearing. That sounds a little different from us swearing, doesn't it? But this is God swearing. Surely, surely, of a certainty. Certainly, certainly. Blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And talking about Abraham, he goes on to say, And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. In other words, he's saying in business, natural business and natural human affairs, if you give somebody your oath, that is if your word means anything, then that's a, a, a good enough assurance that somebody else can count on. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein, or in like manner, God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's us, the immutability, the word immutability just means unchanging nature. So willing to show unto the heirs of promise the unchanging nature of his counsel, that word counsel means the will of God, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, two unchanging things. Now the two unchanging things he's talking about. First is his counsel or his will. That means his word is always good. And then secondly, the oath that he made. Surely I will bless thee. Blessing I will bless thee. That by two immutable or unchanging things. In which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation or comfort. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Remember Jesus said, in your patience possess your souls. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Now I want you to turn back with me in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 15. We just read that Abraham is our example for patient endurance. For patient endurance. Chapter 15 of Genesis, beginning in verse 1, I'll read a lot of these scriptures in the, in the chapter, maybe not the whole one, whole chapter, but we'll get enough of it so you'll get an idea of what's going on. This is where God swore the promise that Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, 
saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? You remember in chapter uh, 12, the Bible tells us that God appeared to Abraham and he made a promise to it. He said, Go into a land which I tell you, and I will bless you and make your name great. Name being great means seed, give you children. And thou shalt be a blessing. Well, Abraham was 75 years old when God first appeared to him. Now here in Genesis chapter 15, he's probably about 85 years old. And so God is renewing or refreshing the promise unto him. But Abram is concerned about the children. Now the children part is the only part of the promise that has not been realized. The Bible says God made Abraham very rich in silver and cattle and gold. He's certainly been a blessing to other people as we can read in previous scriptures in the last few chapters, chapters 13 and 14. And so really the only part of the promise that has not been fulfilled is the son of promise. So Abram says, behold, thou hast given me no seed and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him saying, this shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell or count the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. That's the promise that the Bible talks about over and over and over again that Abraham stuck to, clung to, held on to. And it was the keeping of that promise or the believing in that promise that was counted unto Abraham as righteousness. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And Abraham answered back, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle of and a young pigeon. And it talks about how that he sacrificed those animals in a covenant-making way. He split the animals down the, uh, down the middle and laid the, the, the two halves apart from each other. The blood in the middle of the two halves was significant and signified the covenant that they were making together. It tells us about Abraham driving away the fowls which came down upon it and the, uh, the deep sleep that fell upon him. And God starts talking to him about his seed hundreds of years down the road. Verse 13, he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that's not theirs, and shall serve them, the people of the land in other words, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom thou shalt serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. This is when Moses led them out of, the, uh, out of Egypt toward the promised land. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those two pieces. In the same day the Lord God made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the great river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. Now there's a couple of things that, that we in uh, our Western culture would not recognize that, um, uh, that certainly somebody of, of Abraham's day would. And that is, the way that a covenant was made is you took the animals, the specific animals that God told Abraham to take, you split them or cut them down the middle, lay the halves on each side, it makes a trench of blood. Now, the two parties that are entering into a covenant 
are required to walk, one on one end, one starts on the other end, to walk toward one another. Well, I'm not saying that very well. If I'm one of the ones entering into the covenant, I walk to the end of the blood between the things and back, and then the other guy does the same thing and ends up on the other end where he started from. But the Bible tells us that Abraham's not the one that walked through the, the blood. The smoking, what does it say? Smoking flax and burning lamp, smoking furnace and a burning lamp, those are indicative and, and symbolic of Jesus. Jesus made a covenant with himself on behalf of God and Abraham. Jesus was God's representative to walk from his end. Jesus was man's representative to walk from Abraham's end. So Jesus is making a covenant with himself between God and Abraham, the agent of both parties. Now here's why that's significant. If it was Abraham that was doing the walking, then that covenant would be limited by Abraham's strength or it would be limited to the degree that he did everything right. We wouldn't have to worry about things being done right from God's end. But Jesus standing in for Abram, and that's why he fell into this deep sleep. That's why he saw things as a, in a vision form, saw these things took place in a supernatural manner. And God tells him about keeping the covenant or keeping the uh, promise about his seed. Now, turn with me over to chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, so you can see that about 14, maybe 15 years have passed. When Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name be any more called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham for a father of many nations. Have I made thee? Notice how he said that. He said that God had already done it. God said himself that he's already done it. For a father of many nations, I have made thee, not I'm going to make thee. As far as God was concerned, it was already done because his word was out. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. He's not making new covenants with Abraham. He keeps talking about the infallibility of the old covenant that he made, the one covenant that he made with it. He keeps talking about it over and over again. God is keeping in his mind, first and foremost, the promise, the covenant promises that he made with Abraham. It would be well for Abraham to do the same thing. But he didn't really do that. Let's keep reading. It says, verse 8, I'll give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is why the Jews believe that all of Israel is theirs and won't give up any land. God said it's theirs for an everlasting covenant. Um, well, verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. That's the sign of the covenant. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. Um, and then it comes down. Let's skip down to verse 15 just for the sake of time. And God said unto Abraham, as for Sarah, the wife, 
Thou shalt not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. I don't know if I'm saying either one of those right. And I will bless her and give her give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now some translations use this word or translate this word as rejoice, but if you look at the look up the word the meaning in the original Hebrew, it means laugh. In other words, it's telling us that in about the, the, the 14 or 15 years between chapter 15 when the covenant was made and when Abraham is 99 years old, he's no longer believing in the son of promise. Somewhere along the way, he stopped believing. And folks, you need to understand one of the key elements about faith and patience, one of the reasons why patience is so important is because the devil who is the God of this world. We talked about this before, but let me remind you. There are three different words that are used for world throughout the scripture. One means the earth, the planet itself. Well, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. The planet belongs to God. There's another word that's used for world that's the word cosmos. It means the world order or the arrangement of things. That's not the word that the Bible uses when it tells us that Abraham is the God of this world. He's not the God of this world system. Abraham, did, uh, I'm sorry, Satan did not change this world system when Adam fell. God established this world system and Satan doesn't have the power to change it. Now, I'm sure he would if he could. And certainly he influences people to make changes detrimental to the people of God. To make changes to this world system. But that's not what the Bible says Satan is the God of. Where it says Satan is the God of this world. And that's 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 I believe. Where it says he's the God of this world. The word world means time. It means period of time. It means age. And we know that Satan has authority here on the earth. Up to the end of the church age. And after that God comes back. Jesus comes back. Raptures the church. And we watch from above the things that take place. The terrible things that take place in the tribulation. Now, the tribulation is not a fun time for the devil. We see all the destruction. We see all the things that take place to large, in large part because of his influence on man. But Satan knows his time is coming. You remember when Jesus went out, the first time it tells us that Jesus came to a person that was demon-possessed. This evil spirit that was in this guy knew who he was. And the first thing that happened when Jesus addressed him and told him to come out the first thing that happened was this evil spirit that was possessing this guy spoke up and says, Have you come, I know who you are, thou son of David. Have you come to torment us before the time? One of the things that I like so much about that story is that it reveals to us that the first and foremost thing that's on evil spirits' minds, demons' minds, is the end of their time here on the earth. They know their time is short. The devil knows that too. He's the God of this world He's the God of this time period. But even at that, it doesn't mean you can't have victory over him. Jesus gained victory over him even though he is the God of this, this time or this age. And again, this age means the church age. When Jesus comes back for us, the devil is cooked. Even though he'll run roughshod over the earth for seven years, a period of seven years. The book of, or the book of Revelation identifies that the tribulation period is one thing after another that the devil tries to do and fails. He tries to do certain things against Israel and God steps in and intervenes and stops him. The tribulation will show the world what a loser the devil is. 
Now, he'll have great influence. He'll lead a lot of people astray. No question about that. But the tribulation period clearly shows that the devil doesn't have the power that he claims that he does. So here's Abraham. 14 or 15 years after God has made the covenant with him and promised him that his seed would be as the stars of the sky. And somewhere along the way, Abraham is turned loose of the promise. And this is the reason why I started talking about the, the devil and the, being the God of this age. And that is the only thing he's got to turn you away from God and the truth of his word is time. We know that the devil can hinder certain things, delay certain things. Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, I plan to come back to you, but Satan hindered me. Well, if Satan hindered Paul, he can probably hinder us too sometimes, huh? Now, it didn't affect the, the work of God, the ministry of God. He still got the information to them in written form that he would have given them if he had been with them in person. But the devil does have some authority to hinder, but not to stop. Big difference in hindering, meaning delaying, and stopping or detouring the promise of God. The devil cannot change God's word. He's not strong enough to keep God's word from coming to pass. All God needs is steadfast people who through faith and patience will stick it out until the promise comes. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, verse 17 again, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? Bear a son, in other words. And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Now the previous chapter, chapter 15, was where the, the uh, covenant was made. Chapter 16 tells us about when uh, Sarah brought Abraham, her husband, Hagar, the handmaid of Sarah. And through Hagar, Ishmael was born. And by the time that this takes place, some years later, most everybody agrees that, that uh, um, Ishmael was 13, 14 years older than Isaac was, somewhere around there. And by the time that Abraham gets to 99 years of age, he's just looking to the son born of him and Hagar to be blessed. He's thinking, apparently, that so shall thy seed be is going to come through Hagar and not Sarah. But God fixes that. He, he's corrects his thinking on that. God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him and for an everlasting covenant and his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. I will bless him. In other words, behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him exceeding. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make of him a great nation. Now, folks, here's the point I'm trying to get across. Where the Bible tells us, where we just read over in Hebrews chapter 6, that after Abraham patiently endured, where's his patience up to this point? I don't see any evidence of it. But the Bible tells us in chapter 18 that the Lord appears unto him one more time. And he talks to him about Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks to him about the work or the destruction that's going to come to the cities. Abraham intercedes with him to try to find 10 people. If there are 10 righteous people in the city, will you spare it? And God agrees to do that. But of course, there aren't 10 righteous. But during that visit, he speaks to Abraham again about Isaac, the son of promise being born. 
Sarah's listening in, and she laughs this time. And the Lord calls Abraham on and says, why did she laugh? Abraham talks to her about it and says, why did you laugh? She said, I didn't laugh. And he says something that indicates a change in his heart. He said, the Lord said, you laughed, so you laughed. In other words, his dependence on the word, his belief in the word of God has taken a new level or uh, entered into a new level. But even at that, how long did Abraham have to patiently endure before the promise was realized? A year? Nine months of that was her being pregnant. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm certain that the devil kept trying to tell Abraham and Sarah both, just because you're pregnant doesn't mean you're going to take this baby full term. I'm sure he was screaming at him every day saying, you're 90 years old, Sarah. Don't think that this is not a high-risk pregnancy. Don't think that this child is truly going to be born. I'm not trying to take away from their faith at all. But I'm I'm trying to point out the fact that they weren't perfect in faith like the Bible tells us we have to be. What's encouraging to me is the New Testament only recognizes when he was in faith, not when he was in unbelief. Look with me now to Hebrews chapter, no, let's go to Romans chapter 4 first. Romans chapter 4 tells us about Abraham's faith. Having read some of the other parts of the story from Genesis, let's start in verse 17. As it is written, here's what God said, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God. I've talked about this before, but it may bear repetition. Where it says, before him whom he believed, it means like unto him. In other words, Abraham has for this last year before Isaac was born has been operating as an imitator of God. Well, the imitator how? Who quickeneth the dead, that means he began speaking life to his body and calling things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now, folks, realize just a year before, chapter 18 says that that Sarah will bear a child a year from now. So it was during his 99th year that he made the adjustment from unbelief to faith. And he used the same promise that was counted unto him for righteousness. So shall thy seed be. Now he's using it as a foundation for his faith. It's not just some crediting of righteousness to him. But the reason it's a credit to his righteousness or a credit of righteousness. Is because that was the thing that he hung on to. That was the word of God that he looked unto and remembered and committed to to receive the promise that God had made. Who against hope believed in hope. He certainly didn't have any natural hope. And that's why he had given up. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, folks, those are physical realities. His body being dead reproductively along with Sarah's as well. She's gone through menopause already. That's supposed to be the end of childbearing years, right? Those were physical realities. He didn't deny the facts, but he wasn't ruled by the physical facts. He chose to believe God's word anyway. He probably reasoned something to the effect of, 
God said, so shall my seed be. He knows how old I am. He knows how old Sarah is. He knows what's going on or what's not going on in our bodies. He knows those things even before he said, so shall thy seed be. So if God is saying he's made me a father of nations, and that's the way my seed are going to be as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, if he said specifically that Sarah would be the one to bear this child of promise, I'm going to believe the creator of the universe. I'm going to believe that he knows what he's talking about. So even though the devil's screaming in his ear day after day after day, in whatever way, whatever temptation, whatever taunt that he was making to it, Abraham makes a change of heart. He stays steady. One of the meanings of the word patience is constancy. Well, that fits in with what James was talking about, a double-minded man being unstable in all of his ways. So he accepts what God said, and he remained constant. Doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. Doesn't mean the devil didn't attack him. It means that he didn't yield to the devil's attack to the degree that took him away from the hope that came from God's promise. The devil's trying to get him to look at his body every day. I'm certain of that. I'm certain that's the way. I know it's the way he works now. It's the way he probably worked then. He hadn't changed either. But Abraham would not look away from the promise. When the devil came and said, your body's not any different than it was last year. He had an answer for it. Maybe so, but God said my seed would be like the stars of the sky. God said that Abraham, that I and Sarah would have a child. And folks, that's strong faith. Strong faith is looking only at the promise of God and not anything else as the final verdict concerning our situations. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. That word staggered is also the word wavered. It's talking about constancy again. But he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was able also to perform. Two characteristics that the Bible identifies about Abraham's faith. Or we could say it this way, two ways that the Bible defines him looking under the promise of God. First of all, it says that he gave God glory. He started thanking God for the answer before he saw it. And then secondly, it says he was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. How do you get fully persuaded? Apparently it doesn't take some long period of time. Because Abraham went from unbelief to fully persuaded pretty quick. We know certainly he got there by the end of the year's time. I'm not sure if he got there quicker than that. I would assume that he did because of the way the Bible identifies it. But it's not some years and years and years long endeavor. At least it doesn't have to be. Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Folks, how did he get fully persuaded? If fully persuaded is a characteristic of strong faith, which the Bible just said that it is, then how do we become fully persuaded? Turn with me to Hebrews. One of the reasons I think Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews is because it ties in so much to things that the Jews would know, things that Paul would have known, things that Paul taught in other churches that he went to. Hebrews chapter 4, 
Verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Why does the Bible tell you to hold fast your profession? The word profession is the word confession. And it goes back to what Abraham said, or what it says of Abraham. It says, Abraham was like unto God in two respects. God who quickens the dead, that just means he began to speak life to his body because that's how God quickens the dead. Remember the Old Testament prophecy, Ezekiel 37, I guess it is, where the valley of dry bones becomes alive. You remember what brings them back to life? It's the Word of God. How did life begin here on this planet? By God speaking it into existence. So if Abraham is going to be like God who quickens the dead, it means he's going to have to speak life and not death. So Abraham starts speaking life to his body. Secondly, it says Abraham called things that were not as though they were because that's what God does. So notice how being an imitator of God comes down in both respects. Quickening the dead, calling things that be not as though they were. Both of those come down to the things that we say. You know how to be fully persuaded, folks? Keep saying the word. Keep saying the word. Now, when we first start speaking the word about our situation, whether it be healing or finances or whatever, when we first start speaking the word, the devil tries to make you feel ashamed to say it. And in any faith endeavor, at least the first or the early faith endeavors that any person encounters or enters into, the biggest part of the confession is trying to build the truth of the word in your own heart rather than carrying power to change the physical realm. But somewhere along that way, it changes. When it starts with just obedience to the word and has a very low degree of power, the more and more and more that we start doing it, start speaking the word as an affirmation from our own hearts, then the more and more power it begins to generate in the earth. It hardly ever starts off that way with anybody. And a lot of people, obviously, a lot of people give up before it ever gets to the creating power stage. But you become fully persuaded by speaking the word. Just by speaking the word. So it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeding of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Notice what he's talking about. He says, God knows your feelings. Why is he talking about feelings? He just said, hold fast to your profession. Why is he talking about your feelings? Because Jesus had enough experience in this earth and with the devil's temptation to realize that our feelings are the things very often that keep us from speaking God's word. So this scripture has always spoken to me to this degree or to this effect, I don't have to tell God how I feel about it. He knows how I feel about it. Well, if I'm not going to talk to him about my feelings, what am I going to talk to him about? Well, the way to victory is to talk to him about what he promised in his word. Yeah, but I just feel so weak. That has nothing to do with anything. If you want to start your prayer or talk to your confession before God, saying, Lord, you know how I feel, but here's what your word says. That's works. But so many times people get in this place where they feel so weak or they feel so helpless or they feel so under the gun. 
or the time has been revealed to them or told them that it's short concerning sickness and disease perhaps, they let those feelings turn into fear. Nothing wrong with feelings, folks, but they're a terrible guide. They're not intended to guide you. God's word is. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore, therefore means because Jesus knows how you feel. Because Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Because of this, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Folks, there's two things that the devil cannot overcome. One is the grace of God and the other is the mercy of God. And the Bible tells us very specifically here in Hebrews chapter 4, is telling us very specifically, keep saying the word, keep confessing the word. It doesn't matter how you feel. God will have favor on you and his grace has already been extended to you because Jesus came to die for you. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, Paul says by the Holy Ghost something else very uh, similar. He said, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us not consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And let us consider one another. I'm not sure what I said. didn't sound right. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Christian fellowship should be something that encourages each of us. Christian fellowship was designed by God to help us over the rough spots and rough patches of our lives by encouraging us and standing in faith with us and standing in agreement with each other. And the best place to get that, Paul says, by the Holy Ghost is at church. Well, that would make sense if everybody's walking, in, in, walking by faith, wouldn't it? Skip down with me also to verse 35. It says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience. Here we go, for full circle. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. What's the will of God? Well, the will of God is for us to operate in faith. It says without faith it's impossible. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh unto God must believe that he is, meaning that he is who the Bible tells us he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, folks, that'd be a great confession for you to start with. To begin to confess that God is a rewarder because I'm diligently following after him. See, a lot of people get caught up, depending on the church background or, or church teaching they've had in, earlier in their lives. A lot of people get caught up on whether or not God really wants them to have anything. Well, God wants to be a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. But again, that's a faith effort. We have to believe. And remember the principle of faith is to believe in your heart and say with your mouth, not believe according to your experience, but believe according to what the word says. And speak that from our mouth, that God does want to reward me. God is who he said that he is. He is faithful that promise. And he's my rewarder. 
The more and more and more we speak that, the more and more real it becomes to us. The more fully persuaded we become on that point. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, that would include praying the will of God, it would include walking in the will of God, it would include exercising your faith according to what the Bible says is yours. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Folks, the devil is always going to try to tell you it won't work. He starts off trying to tell you it won't work, and then when you start to see that it is working, he'll tell you that it won't keep working. If you start gaining victory and start seeing some change in your life according to what you're believing and saying, the devil will start telling you it won't last, it won't last, it won't last. Something will happen. You better be happy with how things are today because tomorrow's not going to get better. There's another scripture over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. It says, faithful is he who calleth you. He shall also do it. King James says he shall also do it. When I was in uh, Bible school back in the early early 80s, well, actually it was 1981, uh, there was something I was believing for, financial thing that I was believing for, that was really, really important, really critical to continuing on the education that I was getting at Bible school. And just as I woke up one morning, and this, this happens... I start to say this happens to me a lot. That's, that would give you the wrong idea. The times that it does happen, it usually happens this way. Just as I'm waking up in the morning, the Lord's there to speak something to my heart. Well, this time it was 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24. And again, the King James says, Faithful is he who calleth thee, who will also do it. But the Holy Ghost said it this way to me. And for me, it's always going to be this, this way. Faithful is he who calleth thee that will also bring it to pass. Well, that was as good for me as the answer itself. Because now I've got a word from the Lord. And I was going through the very same thing that I was talking to you about just a few minutes before. I saw a little bit of the answer. I saw some things starting to change. And the devil was right there saying it won't last. It won't finish. It won't come to completion. You won't get it. And here I've got the Lord saying he'll bring it to pass. I equate something like that with what Abraham got from the Lord, so shall your seed be. God didn't bring you halfway to let you drown. When, Paul, when Peter got out of the boat and walked in the water to Jesus, when he started to sink, Jesus didn't pass him by saying, well, too bad for you. He picked him back up and they walked together back to the ship. God's word is never given to make a little bit of an improvement in your life. God's word makes radical changes. God's word brings to pass when we believe it and speak it. His word brings to pass the fullness of everything that he promised and usually even more. I've never known God to be less than or just equal to what we believe him to be. I've always found my successes in faith, the things that I've received by faith and from God's word, I've always found him to be greater than I even thought that he was. Greater in those circumstances than I thought that he would be. I think God delights in surprising us at how much bigger he is than what we think he is. Amen? God is faithful. 
Therefore, we should be faithful to hold fast our confession. He's faithful who promised. He's looking for faithful people to operate in his word. Smith Wigglesworth said God will pass over a million people to find one person standing in faith. I always want that one person to be me, don't you? Well, thank you. I want it to be you too. God will pass over a million people to get somebody believing or standing in faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We count you faithful, Father, to watch over your word to perform it. So we say, faithful are you who called us. Faithful are you who gave us your word. Faithful are you who stand with us. You will bring it to pass. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. We bless you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.